please do take your Bibles and join me in the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 138 this morning. Uh, that's five, page 521 in the blue ESV Bibles and the seatbacks out there. We're going to look at Psalm 138. We're going to look at the whole psalm, and the title of our sermon uh, is Expressed Gratitude. Most of you are going to know this. We are presently smack dab in the middle of uh, a fairly brief series unpacking the core values of Redeemer Baptist Church. So far, we've considered three of seven values that the elders believe need to mark our church. Values we need to embrace as a church in order to fulfill our mission to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. We began with the value of acceptable worship. I asked you to join me in a renewed and refreshed commitment to offer acceptable worship to God in accordance with what He has revealed in His law. Um, And second, I asked you to join me in a renewed commitment to demonstrate lawful love toward our neighbors, right? We want to refuse to let our finite and sinful thoughts and desires and feelings define what it means to love someone. God gets to do that, and He has done that in His Word. And then last week, I asked you to join me in a renewed commitment to engage in spiritual warfare against the forces of evil over this present darkness, against the system of disobedience and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and against the sinful desires and passions of the flesh that are waging war against the Spirit within us. We said at the end of the sermon last week as well that we engage in this warfare of worship in no small part by embracing the remaining values that we're going to be uncovering and unpacking in the next few weeks, particularly thanks, uh, thanksgiving or thankfulness, gratitude, hospitality, uh, and unity. And all of this done as we look beyond our present moment, decades, even centuries into the future, Lord willing, to, to leave a godly legacy, a glorious legacy for generations to come. So today, we're in our fourth value, express gratitude, or thankfulness, thanksgiving, however exactly you want to put it. And it brings us to Psalm 138. Truthfully, it could have brought us to nearly any page in the Bible. It was rather difficult deciding what text to preach. Um, As I thought about thankfulness and gratitude, because the Bible talks so often about it, um, and because of this, this oft-repeated theme of, of the Scriptures, um, what, I'm, what we're going to do this morning with Psalm 138 is we're going to consider the psalm itself somewhat briefly, uh, mainly focusing on this central theme of thankfulness and gratitude that we find in it. And then we're going to work out uh, a broader picture for us from some other Scriptures about what thanksgiving and thankfulness should look like for the people of God. So we're going to start in Psalm 138, uh, spend some time there, and then we're going to uh, relatively quickly hop around a bit 
uh, more than usual. So let me read the psalm. I'm going to make some uh, comments about it, and then um, we'll get to work. It says, uh, I will give thanks. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of earth shall give thanks, O Lord, for they shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. In this psalm, David gives us or he, or he gives thanks uh, for, for three things in particular, or really two things in particular, and then he considers thanksgiving more broadly uh, in a third way. First, he, he gives thanks to God with an eye toward God's own character and nature. We see this particularly in verses 1 and 2. And then he, give, he gives thanks to God with an eye toward God's dealings with David personally. We see this in verse 3 and verses 7 and 8. And then, uh, in verses 4 through 6, um, we see David expecting thanksgiving to be made, not by himself alone, but by the whole earth. And so I want to consider each of these things um, with you relatively quickly. Uh, in the first place, David gives thanks regarding God's own character. David says that he gives thanks to God's name because of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And then he says, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. There is a connection here, a relationship that we ought not miss between God's steadfast love and faithfulness on the one hand and his commitment to glorify his own name and word on the other. David can have the utmost confidence in God's commitment to him His steadfast love and faithfulness, in other words, because God's name and His reputation are at stake. God has exalted His name and His word above all things. Therefore, He has shown steadfast love and faithfulness to His people. And this moves moves David to thankfulness and to gratitude. And so we want to be thankful to God, first and foremost, because of who He is. And because of his own commitment to his own glory and his own name. But secondly, David isn't just thankful for God's fidelity to himself, but he's thankful for what God has actually done in David's life personally. God has answered him when he called. He strengthened him in his time of need. In verses 7 and 8, David notes that when he walked in the midst of trouble, God preserved his life. He kept him safe from the wrath of his enemies. And this meditation on, the, on God's working in his life produces a thankfulness that uh, concludes in verse 8 with this threefold conclusion. He has a confidence. God will 
not forsake me. He will fulfill his purpose for me. He ends with a recognition. God's steadfast love endures forever. And he ends with a request. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So David is thankful for God, to God, for who God is. He's thankful to God for what God has done in his life. And in verses 4 to 6, there's an expansion in David's mind where thanksgiving is fittingly given by all the earth. This is not just something for David alone. All the kings of earth, he says, shall give thanks to God. They have heard the word of his mouth. They will sing of the ways of the Lord because his glory is great. And David confesses that the Lord is high and exalted, but he has regard for the lowly. Even though the haughty, he only knows from a distance. This psalm is shot through from beginning to end. In, it's a relatively short psalm, just eight verses, but it's shot through with praise and thanksgiving. The psalm teaches us that it's appropriate to express personal thanks to God for things like God's faithfulness and steadfast love. His utter commitment to His own glory and the exaltation of His own name. Things like God delivering us from calamity. Things like God's unending mission to spread His fame far and wide over the whole earth to the praise of His glory, even from kings. And so there's David's engaging in thanksgiving before God, both personally but also a bit corporately. But what does this have to do with us? Well, I want you to pay attention to David's words here and the thankfulness that he has before God because thanksgiving isn't something that is optional for the Christian. So here's a a second heading. So we've covered the psalm briefly. Consider thanksgiving with me a bit more broadly from the Scriptures. And I want to survey this scene with you along three lines. Um, First, there are examples of thankfulness or gratitude. Second, there are warnings against ingratitude. And third, there are commands to actually be grateful. So we see examples of grateful people in the Bible. We see warnings against uh, ingratitude. And we have commands to actually give thanks. So some examples. Noah offers offers a burnt offering to the Lord for preserving his life through the flood in Genesis chapter 8. Moses sings a song of praise to God, giving thanks to the Lord for His deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage in Exodus 15. Leviticus 7 gives, um, I guess this actually would have been more command, but it gives extensive instructions for God's people under the Old Covenant regarding peace offerings of thankfulness. And um, we see this in the Psalms especially, filled with Thanksgiving. Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good. Psalm 34. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. Psalm 111. I will thank the Lord with all my heart and 
as I meet with his godly people. Psalm 95, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him, for the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. Psalm 92, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning, your faithfulness in the evening, accompanied by a ten-stringed instrument, a harp, and the melody of the lyre. Psalm 69, 29, I am suffering and in pain. Rescue me, O God, by your saving power. And I will praise God's name with singing and honor Him with thanksgiving. The New Testament likewise, jam-packed with this theme of thankfulness. Paul's prayers especially are filled with thanksgiving. He explicitly gives thanks. I tried to count it. I'm not the best at math, but I counted nine out of 13 letters that he explicitly gives thanks for his people. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. He begins these letters sometimes with extended sections of thanksgiving for the people of God. So we have countless examples, but we also have warnings. Warnings about ingratitude. God judges Israel for their ingratitude, often in the Old Testament. One example will suffice in Numbers 21, for instance. It is precisely because of their ingratitude, their mumbling and complaining against God, that they suffer. They were grumbling, complaining, uh, droning on and on about a lack of uh, food that they wanted. And so he sends fiery serpents into their camp so that many people died. Or what does Paul say in Romans 1? Perhaps the, the, the best known, I would say, warning against ingratitude in all the Bible. He says, in essence, ingratitude, a lack of thankfulness, is a chief mark of unbelievers. Speaking of godly, ungodly men who suppress the truth, he says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, while the presence of manners, saying thank you, is not proof that the love of God is in you, the absence of a grateful heart is about as sure a proof as you're going to get that God's love is not in you. Failing to honor God and give thanks to Him according to Paul, is a chief mark of the rebellious person. In Luke 17, Jesus laments how nine of the ten lepers that he heals failed to turn back long enough to give thanks to God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, he says. Avoid ungrateful people. 
we know that experience, either ourselves or being around someone else that's just unbelievably ungrateful, the complainer. It's difficult to be around the complainer. Even if that complainer is staring at you in the mirror. What about commands? Topping it all off, we don't just have examples of thankful people in every page of Scripture. We have warn, uh, and warnings of ingratitude, but we have commands to be thankful. We see this in Deuteronomy 8. Moses commands the people to receive good things from God and to bless Him for those things. Deuteronomy 8, 10-14, as an antidote for the ever-present problem that we humans face, forgetting God. And then Paul, Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Hebrews 12, 28, we begin with this, acceptable worship, because we have received a, an unshakable kingdom. What? Let us be thankful and offer to God acceptable worship. One more. I think this is just the last one in terms of this long string of quotes from the Bible. But how about this one? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Paul writes, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I admit... It all feels a bit overwhelming sometimes. What do we do with all of these examples, all of these warnings, all of these commands? Be thankful. Be grateful. You better be grateful. You better be overflowing with joy and thankfulness and cheer at all times or else you are proving that you're just not a Christian. God's love isn't in you and his wrath is ready to be poured out. Is that what we do with it? Man, I hope not. Thankfulness doesn't make you a Christian, but Christians, as a rule, are thankful people. And we should be. Now, there won't be, it doesn't mean that there aren't times in our lives where we're not consciously grateful every single moment of the day. Right? Are there, are there not times in our lives when there are other thoughts and emotions that are just a little bit more prominent than gratitude? Before we think about ourselves, think about Jesus. Never ungrateful. Can I, we say that up front. Jesus was never ungrateful, and yet, when he stood before Lazarus' tomb weeping, or when he made a whip to drive out money launderers and overturning tables in the temple, was it joy and thankfulness that was the prominent thought for him in that precise moment? I imagine not. Or when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was it complete elation that led him to utter those words? Of course not. 
and yet he was never ungrateful. And so Jesus' gratitude shows me that gratitude can be exercised within the heart of a godly person at times, at the same time as other seemingly competing thoughts and emotions in the most trying of circumstances. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So thanksgiving and gratitude is not trite, shallow optimism that fails to live in the reality of a broken and difficult world. But we need to take it a step further than just seeing Jesus as some great example of how to perfectly balance sorrow and joy. It's not enough to say, okay, great, I I can be thankful even when I'm sad. Good to know. Because I actually do, I am ungrateful sometimes. I need to know, what do I do with my ingratitude? So, I'll offer this as a confession. I've told some of you about this already. Ironically, as I was writing this sermon this week, I struggled for three whole days at least with one of the most intense bouts of ingratitude in my entire life. From about 7.03 Tuesday morning till sometime at least Thursday afternoon, I have pretty much struggled to be grateful. I found every opportunity that I could to be grumpy, to complain, at least in my own heart, not always audibly, but in my own heart, to be angry, to be short with my children, to be irritable, and to despair. So what do I do with that? What do I do when I find myself on the run, hunted down by ingratitude? Every step I take, He gains two or three on me. What do I do when every moment of the day presents me with a new opportunity to be ungrateful, to complain, to mope, to despair? I don't know. This isn't going to be new information. You run to Jesus. What is Paul? So, 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. What does he say in 2 Corinthians 1? He says, I despaired of life itself, believing I had received a sentence of death because I was burdened beyond my strength. But what was the lesson that he learned from that experience? 2 Corinthians 1, he says, it was so that I would stop relying on myself and rely on God who raises The dead. He not he so he opens that section with the note of thanksgiving. He blesses God, the God of all comfort, who comforts us with with every comfort in our afflictions, that we may comfort you and yours. 
But then he goes on from those verses in 8 and 9 and says in verse 10, he's banked his hope. He says, I, me, us, me and my band, in this burden, this sorrow that we experienced that was so difficult, so beyond our strength, we thought we were dead, but then we remembered, wait, God raises the dead. So he's banked his hope on this resurrecting God and asked, in verse 10, the Corinthians to pray for them so that many others will give thanks on their behalf. In other words, Sam, brothers and sisters, even if the painful experience that you're enduring kills you, God raises the dead. The gospel is great medicine for the ungrateful heart. Milton Vincent, uh, a year or two ago, I pretty much every conversation you had with me involved this book that he wrote, a, a gospel primer. I've laid off of it for a while, but got to bring it back. Here's what he says. It's a long quote, but worth it. I didn't quote all of it, but it's still, still long. He says about thankfulness, In the gospel, he says, the more absorbed I am in the gospel, the more grateful I become in the midst of my circumstances, whatever they may be. Viewing life's blessings as water water in a drinking cup, I know that I could discontentedly focus on the half that seems empty. Or I could gratefully focus on the half that is full. Certainly, the latter approach is the better of the two. Yet the gospel cultivates within me a richer gratitude than this. The gospel reminds me that what I actually deserve from God is a full cup churning with the torments of His wrath. This is the cup that would be mine to drink if I were given what I deserve each day. With this understanding in mind, I see that to be handed a completely empty cup from God would be cause enough for infinite gratitude. If there were the merely the tiniest drop of blessing contained in that other, otherwise empty cup, I should be blown away by the unbelievable kindness of God toward me. That God has given me a cup that is full of every spiritual blessing in Christ, and this without the slightest admixture of wrath, leaves me truly dumbfounded with inexpressible joy. This disposes my heart to give thanks in all things, And it also lends a certain intensity to my giving of thanks. So the gospel reminds me that it isn't an empty cup that's the problem that I face. It's a cup full of wrath that I deserve. So an empty cup would be great. That's not what God gives me in the gospel. In the resurrection... What we get in full, we experience now in part, is a cup full of blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the gospel fundamentally is our antidote toward ingratitude. But I want to close now with a few applications. Two applications and then an illustration that I I hope will drive it all home. First, thankfulness 
means thankfulness in plenty as well as in want. Now, I think most Reformed Christians, probably any Christian that isn't health, wealth, and prosperity, preacher guy, would love, we love to ring the bell of thanksgiving and contentment and suffering. That's kind of what I've been doing for this whole time. Even in our sorrows, even in our sufferings, we can be content, we can be thankful, we can express that thanks to God. But I want to ring the other bell for a moment. Right? It's, it's hard to be thankful in austere circumstances. But it can also be help hard to be thankful in good times as well. Isn't it? Psalm, uh, Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed, with me, feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is a fine prayer. It's full of wisdom. But there's also a truth. Paul says in Philippians 4 that in Christ we can know how to be full and how to be poor. So, I think it's fitting in a a culture that still to this day is generally very much a one of fullness, materially speaking, and familially speaking, children-wise, we're very full here. Spiritual blessings-wise, we're very full here. So what does it look like to be full to the glory of God? Well, it means being really thankful for what you have. It doesn't mean feeling guilty about what you have. And doing your best to pretend like you don't have it. Consider Psalm 144. The psalmist blesses God for a number of things. Preparing him for war and battle, shielding him from his enemies, giving victory to kings, rescuing him from the cruel sword, delivering him from those who speak lies. And then he makes a litany of requests of the Lord. It says, this is the very end of Psalm 144, May our sons and their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So one application of this commitment of Gratitude is to, in fact, experience and express gratitude for whatever material, familial, or spiritual blessings that you have. Now, of course, we we don't want to build our lives upon such things in such a way that you can't function without them or you couldn't praise God if they were to be taken away. We need to balance the teaching of Scripture on this point. But we need to be able to say that while we are called to contentment and thankfulness in all circumstances, 
And we are not promised that following Jesus will lead to material blessings without exception. The Scripture does not ask us to reject the world that God has made. Two examples from 1 Timothy will make this point well, I think. Paul says in Chapter 4, verse 4, that everything created by God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving. He says in 6.17 that God has provided richly, has richly provided us with everything to enjoy. Now, enjoyment of that which God has provided personally is not the only thing that I am to do with what God has given me, as we will see more next week, Lord willing, but enjoying the the life and the blessings that God has given to you is one of those things that you need to do with those blessings. Enjoy the blessing and enjoy God in the blessing. Thank Him for it. Well, second point to be made here, and you might have noticed a theme in some of the, the songs that we sang earlier. Uh, gratitude, express gratitude for the people of God means that we will be a singing people. Think about, back to our text, Psalm 138. What does he say? I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. Two things about this. He, he praises God with his whole heart. He's not offering half-hearted praise. He's giving it all he's got. And then he says, before the gods, I sing your praise. Thankfulness, at least at times, simply cannot be adequately expressed in prose. Poetry is needed. Talking just won't do it. Singing is needed. We want to be a singing people. Isn't isn't it a, a remarkable thing? Just in this room on Sunday mornings, there are moments each week where Scale back the music, or it's a song that we all happen to know, and we're all just singing. And it is astounding to me to be in such a room. Or if you've ever been at a, a conference with you know, thousands of people and we're singing, it's amazing to hear God's people sing. If you lined us all up individually, I don't know, maybe like 8% of us can like carry a, a tune in a bucket or whatever they say. But when we're all together, what does God do? He blesses it. And it's beautiful. We want to be a singing people. But notice where David talks about singing here. Where does he sing? He sings Yahweh's praise before the gods. And so this brings us back uh, to a couple of different strands of thought from what we've been talking about in this series. But at a minimum, it brings us back to last week. Spiritual warfare. Singing is warfare. Gratitude 
to the one true living God whose love never fails, whose faithfulness never comes to an end, expressed in song is done before in the presence of, in other words, the gods, the spiritual forces of darkness in this present age, in other words. In the face, then, of the hordes of hell, we sing. And we defy them and declare our thanks and our praise and our adoration to the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is faithful, ever true, who exalts His Word and His name above all things, who answers His people when they call. Not always with the precise answer that our wisdom says we need, but He does answer us and He does deliver us in the day of trouble. And so we engage in spiritual warfare, liturgical warfare, warfare of worship when we sing. So let me close then. I want to offer one of the the best pictures of what gratitude looks like in a person uh, that I found in all of Christian literature. Technically, uh, this example is... uh, described as a picture of kingship. Um, the best kings are the grateful are the grateful ones, but it will apply to us. I trust you'll see. In C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Horse and His Boy, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, he he tells about King Loon. King Loon tells his son Cor what kingship is all about. He says, This is what it means to be a king. To be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. I always heard one of my college professors summarize that passage this way for talking about raising sons and all the idea of of nightly boys and all that first in, last out, laughing loudest. And so Lewis is describing kingship, and this passage often most directly gets applied to men and raising boys especially. Think about what Proverbs 31 says about the godly woman. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Why does she laugh? Well, it's because she's well cared for by God and she's grateful why can I wear finer clothes and and laugh louder over a scantier meal than anyone else because gratitude isn't something that's based upon favorable conditions it's not something based upon the circumstances in my life there are bad days there are bad weeks bad months and bad years But whether in times of plenty or in times of want, we have the Lord Jesus. We can be thankful for who He is. We can be thankful for how He has loved us. We can trust that His praise shall be made in all the earth and that He's guiding us wisely forever. And one day, long after we've closed our eyes in death, there will be a resurrection that rights all the wrongs. A resurrection over which death will have no sway. 
we shall live again and reign as kings and queens with Christ, the King of kings, forever. And so church, will you join me in a renewed commitment to be ever grateful and to be sure to express such gratitude to God in heaven now and forever. Well, amen.